I promise myself that I'm going to hit the page with whatever I'm feeling at the moment, even if it doesn't apply to what I plan to write, because I really want what I'm writing to feel immediate. Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. My guest today is David Santos Donaldson. He is a finalist for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, also the 2023 Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction. Well-deserved on both of those. We'll talk about his book in a moment. He's a playwright whose work has been performed at the Public Theater, a theater that I have a lot of love for and have visited many, many times. David Santos Donaldson is also a practicing psychotherapist which explains a lot of insight that he has in his book that we're going to talk about in a second. So the book that David Santos Donaldson wrote is called Greenland. It came out last year, 2022. HarperCollins is the publisher. It's fantastic. It's a novel. I would say it's magical realism, but it's totally contemporary. And we met at the, I want to say the Brooklyn Book Festival at a party. There might've been some drinking. And honestly, you described your book to me and I was like, all right. I, I like just didn't get it. I mean, you know, these things are like, you're talking to people for 30 seconds. And also like, we were just talking about other stuff Yeah. and you mentioned you were an author and you said in passing that you had a book about, and it was called Greenland. And like, I think I heard that it was a book about Greenland <laughs> and you know, I was just like, whatever, he seems like a nice guy. I'm sure he'll be a fun interview. <laughs> and so I just filed it away as like fun guy. I met wrote a book about maybe like Alan counter or, you know, like a voyage to Greenland or something. And so, um, when I picked it up, I went completely with fresh, uh, with fresh eyes with no expectations of it whatsoever. And it starts, uh, this doesn't spoil anything, but it basically starts with the main character holding a gun. And for me, I was like, all right, I'm in, this sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it was a fantastic book at the risk of offending some friends. I think it's my favorite, uh, novel that I've read this year. And I just like, it just sucked me in. It does I'll just give you a bunch of praise up front and then we'll talk about it. But it does so many things that are so difficult so well. Like it takes place in three times, maybe four, maybe two. It kind of depends on how you think about it. And that is really hard to do. Like, you know, people usually do it in sci-fi with like different chapters or different, and I don't know how you do it. It just kind of like works and it all makes sense. <laughs> and it's, uh, and that's not by accident. That is, you know, it's clearly a lot of work went into that, but you don't see the work when you're reading the book, which is amazing. It's got these sort of two or three interwoven stories and it's just, it's just a beautiful book. So I have a lot of questions for you. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. So Greenland. So uh, if that was not a clear enough plug, like definitely get this book. You're going to like this book, buy this book, read this book. You're going to love it. Wow. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, no problem. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I generally like the books that I read on the show, but, it, but yeah, this one really stood out to me. Um, all right. I'm going right, to, I'm going to stop with the, I'm going to stop with the praise because you know, a, a person can only handle so much, but I really liked the book. So Anyway, uh, E.M. Forrester. Yeah. Why did E.M. Forrester become a subject of your? Did it start with E.M. Forrester? I mean, I'm, I'm just. This is such a unique yeah. book, and I'm wondering where it all came from. It's. It did start with E.M. Forrester. It did. So you know, I was. Uh, my mom was a was a, a literature teacher in a high school. Taught high school English literature when I was a kid, and so I grew up with E.M. Forrester books. You know, in my house, and I saw them up on the shelf. But I was never really particularly drawn to him because, in my mind, he was a category of like very staunch, sort of very middle class British 
comedy of manners is what I thought it was like stuff. I didn't really want to read it that much. So uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I um, learned that E.M. Foster was actually gay. He he came out. He didn't come out. His gay novel, Morris, was published po- uh, after he died. I was going to say posthumously, but I would make sure I pronounce it right. Yeah. So uh, after he died in the 70s. So then the word was out that Ian Foster was was gay. And it was at the same time that I was in college and coming out as gay myself. And I was like, oh, uh, that's so weird that this writer who I was sort of looked at as being this very, very distant person, not, not much to do with me, maybe has more to do with me than I realized. So I got interested in reading, see what his work was like. And shortly afterwards, I found out when I read a biography that his first real life relationship and his only really sexual relationship in his life, really, uh, that was lasting was with this black Egyptian tram conductor in Egypt. And that really fascinated me. Like, how did this relationship work? Like, here's this man who was like the epitome of, of colonialism and Britishness with this man who's very different in every way, class, race, culture, religion. How did that relationship work? And that really pulled me in to write about this material. And is there a lot of history about Foster's lover? Or is a lot of this from your imagination? I, I, I was not clear. Like, yeah. In the book, there is history, but I didn't know if that was a literary. Yeah. Thing. So a lot. So I researched a lot. I really, I, so mm-hmm. I did research for like three years uh, and there's not huge amount uh, even in the biographies that you, there are for Ian Foster, I was I was lucky in the year that I was got the idea to write the book. A book came out just about Ian Foster's relationship, so there are only like three of them. But Muhammad was still uh, Muhammad is the character who he meets in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. He was still only about twenty pages in the whole book. It was a big book. So Ian Foster himself wrote something called like a, a tribute to Muhammad, where he wrote a sort of like in his diaries, like a, re- a recount of, of their meeting and what their relationship was like. And that's about 10 pages. So uh, there is history, but I had to expand it a great deal and put a lot of my own imagination of what Muhammad would was like and from some of the quotes, from some of the things that did happen. But all the things that happen in the Muhammad sections are based on historical things that historically happened that are true. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing just the the details that you go into, and it was the weaving of different things in your book that I loved so much, and it was just the, the weaving of historical detail with things that were probably made up. I mean, I don't even know; it could have been completely historically. I have no idea. It all just read as very true, and then the weaving of these different timelines, and you know, you're clearly maybe you're not, but you seem like you're probably a sci-fi fan and has a lot of that in it, but it, you don't, you know, it's not because that there's talking computers. It's just it's just got that a lot of that DNA of um, that method of storytelling. And yeah. also, I should have told you this, that like I, a lot of listeners read the book before they listen to the episode. So not all of them, but so we, uh, we don't worry about spoilers. Okay. So I announced the book a week before and, okay. you know, so people read along. Okay, but like we start with this um, neurotic main character who um, as someone who- Very neurotic. Very neurotic. As someone who's, uh, so when I read when I read Greenland, I was in the process of turning in a draft of my book. Oh, that, boy. That I knew they weren't going to like, but I had to because the you know 
you got to send them something. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm reading this book and I, I could not have related to this character more. <laughs> um, Good. And, and, I'm happy because so many people are so annoyed by him at first, which is totally understandable because he is mm-hmm. a little crazy and a little and obsessed and neurotic. You know, it begins with this, with him locking himself in a room, physically barricading the door so that his husband can't get in and giving himself two weeks to finish his finish his novel or re completely rewrite his novel yeah. based on a off the cuff comment of a publisher yeah. and uh, of a powerful publisher yeah. which I, I just like you know I could see like I haven't done that in in music um as a as a musician I've done things like that where oh, yeah. like I meet with a publisher uh, or with a you know an agent or someone big, and they kind of mention something to me that they think I'd be good at, and then I go home and like you know book a bunch of musicians and try and make it Let's immediately. Let's do make this happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes you got to do that stuff. But yeah, um, this character like and and I would I would agree with other readers uh, that you said you think people find him annoying. I think that there's there is something about him that is kind of off putting at first, but that that becomes his charm. I think and. Because of the way that you wrote him, you're able to explore so many different things through his eyes. I mean, there's there's so much about like racism and being black in America. For listeners who have not seen you, you are a black man. You're from um, Barbados. Do I have that right? Bahamas. 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 So close. Everyone says that. Bahamas. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things, uh, so the, the reason I brought that up is to just um, point out that uh, David is black. And so he has firsthand experience with some of these things. And the character has a, a white husband who's a bit older who just doesn't seem to understand at all the experience of being black in the United States. And right. can can you just talk a little bit about where that came from? And it, it fits seamlessly into the book. It's sort of also so in the book, the main character I think feels a little bit like Muhammad in the relationship with Forster. Yeah. Forster, although I don't know if those parallels are exact. They are in his mind, but yeah. um, but their lives are very different. So can you just talk a little bit about that theme and how how that came about? Yeah. Wow. This is so, you know, it's part of the reason why you I mean you asked me why you know how I got into this material. It's part of the reason why it resonated with me so much. Uh, just thinking about Muhammad and, and, and the more that I read the history about Muhammad and E.M. Foster, because I started to read between the lines and see where E.M. Foster, even as he's talking about Muhammad, was not understanding where Muhammad was coming from, and that was because I was experiencing in my own life dealing with whiteness and in intimate relationships, uh, you know, and, and I started realizing how invisible sometimes these, this whiteness is. And I mean, for me, like whiteness means like the default preference for Eurocentric values and uh, aesthetics, you know? And so uh, I started seeing where that just is everywhere. Um, and I grew up with, like you said, in the Bahamas, which is a British colony, but it's a little different in that because it's mostly a black country uh, and black people, especially I I grew up during the time when we changed from being a colony to uh, post-colonial. So I I bridged that, that gap, but it's run by black people and black people are running everything. And, and, and so there's, you have this luxury in a way, and because they're also majority you have this luxury, which I realize is a luxury when I come to the United States, of growing up as a black person, but conceiving yourself as human first, more than black. Hmm. And I that was a big difference when I came to the United States. I realized that the lens was always the black people were not seen as human first. It was like, oh, the black guy. So that was something that I was grappling with myself and dealing with in relationships 
And so I thought, you know, this, as you say, the material is, it's not foreign to me, the material of the book mm. in dealing with this material. So it's, it's very personal. So that's interesting because what, what I, what I read was the, um, the next phase of what you just described that your characters are not racist. They're sort of like, and, and, and I guess he's like, the, the husband is born, he's probably like in the mid sixties or something. Yeah, so yeah. he's like, he's in, of that generation that is post-racist that would see you and say like, oh, I don't see color when right, I see you. Right, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so he thinks he's not racist because he doesn't see you as a black man, but doesn't understand that being a black man in America makes other people see you differently and makes you perceive yourself maybe as being different. Is that right. is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. When you say you, you mean Juan or Kip or me? <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, I say that because I mean, this, is, yeah. this is part yeah. of the like I get this a lot because it's so 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 it's it reads in many places as you probably know very like maybe auto fiction or autobiographical. It seems so mm. uh, that it's because it's so meta the whole process. Yeah, and it gets confusing about is this like you know is this the author or is this Kip or you know and, I did the one thing that I try never to do on this podcast, which is to like equate people's characters with themselves and it's uh it's it's really hard to do i i had a, a an, another one of my favorite books is called blood sugar from this year by Sotha, sasha rothschild and it's a character who's a psychotherapist and it's an incredibly oh, wow. compelling book yeah and i had to just like i had to like give myself a minute before i talked to her because i'm like okay she's not this main character <laughs> right. like she's a different person so <laughs> yeah sorry i just violated my own rule with you i apologize um, no, but yes i was talking about kip yeah um, well and it's yeah. my fault too because i really I, I i made it so i start out the book with everything being so close to actually me because i actually mm. like kip in the novel i actually wrote a novel about em foster and mohammed and i actually mm met with a big, big, big uh, publishing ed editor at the, Jonathan Galassi is his name, and he runs Flower Strauss and Giroux. You know, he had his people like Jonathan Friends and stuff like that. And he he liked my novel and met with me, but he thought, it, you know, he wasn't going to publish it. And he's, and I sort of fictionalize a version of him in the novel as because he's the one suggested, maybe you want to write it from Muhammad's perspective. So I actually, so that was actually all, Stuff that actually happened to me. You know, I kind of knew that because like only a writer could <laughs> even think of that situation. Right. <laughs> right. Like that would have to happen to you in order to, right. to, to come up with that. Um, but I didn't, so I figured I didn't when I read it, I was like, something to... like this happened. Right. Yeah. And you, I didn't lock myself. You didn't lock yourself. No, not in the basement. No, but I it did it, the whole novel came, the Greenland came out of my frustration at trying to do that. Because I tried to mm. do it, and I tried to write it, just like you talked about going home and trying to make the music for the for the producer who mm. says he wants. I was like trying to write this book so Jonathan Galassi, who's the big big guy, would would like it, and I just hated the process of doing it because I had already written the novel from another perspective, and I and I felt like I had a gun in my head <laughs> writing this because I it wasn't coming, it wasn't working. I, I did it, but I wasn't moved by it or excited by it and so i started just riffing on the page before i started writing my muhammad bits just like sort of going off sometimes when i sit out to write i promise myself that i'm gonna hit the page with whatever i'm feeling at the moment even if it hmm. doesn't apply to what i plan to write to write whatever because i really want what i'm writing to feel immediate so hmm. i want it to be like whatever i'm feeling now so even if i left off yesterday 
at a tragic bit, and if I'm feeling like really light and silly, that's where I hit the page. So hmm. I was hitting the page, and I was like frustrated and angry. Like I feel like I have a gun in my head writing this stupid fucking Muhammad story <laughs> again. <laughs> and then that voice intrigued me, and I said, "Oh, it'd be interesting if that guy was writing about writing it." And that got that was. <laughs> You know, so that's hmm. how the whole thing started to be Greenland. That's fantastic. And yeah, as a professional artist, I've had that feeling of like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. This is someone else's idea. And I, but I'm, you know, sometimes you just got to do it. Sometimes people are paying you to do it. Sometimes, exactly. you know, there's a reason you have to do it, you know? So yeah. it's uh, what you just described, finding the thing that makes it click for you, I think is one of the most satisfying things where right. I realized like, oh, I can make this like work for the client in a way that I like. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. And, and that's, that's what they want too. Like they don't want you to do what they said. They want you to do your version of what they said. Exactly. Yeah. That's fantastic. So the, um, the book that you picked to read, the book that you did not write, um, is Seasons of Migration to the North by Taib Sali, uh, published in 1969. And I'll go out on a limb and try to tie these two books together with a third uh, work and tell me if I'm being crazy, but okay. it's hard to say what this book is about. I mean, it's, it's, it's from the perspective of one character, but it's kind of about another character. Yeah. And, um, I also found the, like, just in reading it, the, it's a translation from Arabic and narratively it flows, it has a voice, but there were some things where I just clearly like, that's an Arabic idiom mm. that is translated weird. Cause that's like just a weird thing to say. And I don't, right. don't really, you know, I, yeah. So that's, I, I don't know if that's a, problem in translation or just a problem with translating between those two languages. But the main character of the book is different from the sort of main Narrate. subject of the book, which yeah. is this, the narrator is different from the main character, I guess. And Mustafa is the main character. He's a, I think, who's a, this brilliant guy who gets educated in Khartoum, moves to London and becomes a womanizer, essentially. And then a murderer. And that, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, a womanizer and then a murderer. And your main character, Kip, is uh let's see how do i how do i put it the, the, so the way that mustafa his method of seduction if you will is to sort of play the play the foreigner to like play up this um idea that he is a exotic man from an exotic yeah. place yeah. and he just you know basically tells these british women exactly what they would think He's his life was like it just makes a type of othello in the jungle and all that right. stuff so, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. And that he's just like Othello. Like right. this is exactly kind of Othello's um, MO. And Kip, I think, thinks that people see him that way, but I don't think anybody does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, that's the, that's the parallel that I drew that I, well, I feel like, there's a bit, you know, yeah. since you said we're not worrying about spoiling, there's a bit mm -hmm. where I don't know if I, well, maybe Kip thinks people, I think Kip wants people, Kip wrestles with sometimes wanting people to see him that way even. Mm -hmm. Like he has a bit in the, the bit when he's in Greenland with the Aguta, the uh, the uh, Greenlandic uh, woman. And he, he wants to be this black mandingo, powerful sexual thing for her, mm -hmm. but also knows that the, uh, the idea is really fucked up. And he's, but yet he's insecure about not being that also. Yeah, I, I hear you. That that part, that that was less where I felt it than with his relationship with his husband, ah, right. where like he thinks his husband loves him 
sometimes or sees him sometimes because he's this exotic black uh, person. Right. Yeah, and, yeah, but yeah. I don't think that is what their relationship is from the husband's perspective at all. Right, right. But it, yeah. but it definitely affects their relationship. Oh, yeah. The other side of this is like, I can just see Kip, even though Kip wasn't really probably sexually attracted to this woman, there is this world in which if a woman comes up to me and thinks I'm one thing and that one thing she thinks I am is going to make her want to sleep with me, I'm inclined to just let her believe that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, even if it maybe isn't the literal truth, like exactly. if I didn't mislead her and this is the conclusion she came to, that's right. fine. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. So, yeah. um, I've definitely gets you know, him, I'm married it, now, which but, gets him in trouble, yeah. which can get all yeah. in trouble, right? So, I should ask you, why did you pick uh, this book, Season of Migrations to the North, and you know, what do you see in it, and how, how did you encounter it, and what do you lo- love about it? Wow, wow. So, there's so many reasons I picked this, and I have to admit, like, it's not a book that I'm in love with. Like there's some books that I just have so much affection for and I just love reading them. I, I find it's challenging in a way, but I respect it so much because it, it. I realize the more and more I look at it, the more I realize how it has impacted me as a writer. So that's one reason I picked it. But also, you know, it's one of the least talked about important novels in the history of literature. You know, it's hmm. there, there's a... It's been voted by, as you probably have read, a panel of academics and writers to be the most important Arabic novel of the 20th century. And also, you know, Edward Said named it among the six top Arabic novels of all time. And I think what makes it so special, even even greater uh, in significance than, let's say, the Nobel Prize winning, do you know Mahfouz writer at all? Have you read any of Mahfouz? Mm-mm. He's wrote a uh, nope. Cairo trilogy. I love him. He's so great. His so, books are great. It's even more important than that because what Saib does is he writes about the sort of Western culture and the, the conflicts uh, in engaging Western culture and Eurocentrism from a non-Western literary tradition, convention. Hmm. So he uses Arabic conventions to write the novel, which is why it's kind of strange for, from a Western perspective, this novel. Hmm. But so is Greenland. I think I, I think I picked up a lot from him in that he he mixes so many things in there. It's a small little book, but it's full of so many different registers and things. Um, and I only learned later on that part of the Arabic tradition is very much what I've been following or being but influenced by without even realizing it so um there's a professor from oxford i forgot his name now uh, someone Irwin. he talks about how the arabic novels deal a lot with duality and reflection stories within stories they're often meta about the writer writing a story they include uh, elements of magic and travels to strange lands and like sexual betrayals but also the power of storytelling as as being life-saving. You know, that's the whole thing with Arabian Nights is Shahrazad saves her life by telling stories, the power. And these are all like the basis of, of the themes in uh, Greenland. I was going to say, it sounds like a review of Greenland. Right. What you just said. <laughs> so I when, when I heard that, this was after I'd written Greenland, I was like, wow, it's weird when you put a book out there, when you write a book, you, you at least for me, I don't think I intentionally... A lot of things are intentional, stylistically informed, but I don't really know all of what I'm doing. I'm not trying to put it in historical context and say, this is, I'm writing in this, whatever. But when I read reviews, then they do that kind of stuff. So I learned after writing the book that it was 
modernist. I didn't really realize that it was hmm. modernist. And I realized it was unconventional. I was like, well, I knew it wasn't normal. But so I think what it is, is maybe more than anything, maybe more than modernist, it's conventional in an Arabic uh, African way, but not in hmm. a Western way in that it combines all these things. Yeah. There were some stylistic similarities between seasons of migration to the North, just like the way that, and you know, I've noticed this in friends of mine who are from the Arab world in the way they tell stories just casually mm-hmm. that like they'll tell one story and then they'll tell what seems like a completely unrelated story. Uh-huh. And then it turns out that these two things are similar for some reason. Right. And, um, that, that is, uh, that might just be, I mean, that might just be a way of thinking, um, that, and I find it endlessly entertaining. It's also Semitic also. I think, I think it's that part of the world. You yeah, know? no, absolutely. You bring a good point because, uh, I was thinking there's, you know, Borges talks about, um, in, in Hebrew, there's no word for nonfiction or fiction. There's only one word, it's narrative. Hmm. And so you bring in all these elements together. And like you said, it's so somatic in a sense also in that it's like there's a whole, this whole way of thinking that is not, that includes these different things, these different sides. Yeah. Duality. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting to just think about like the, the people who live in, you know, the Northern part of Africa and the Eastern part of the Mediterranean have more millennia in common than they do separately. I mean, they have been warring factions for the last, I don't know, 2000 years, but for 10,000 years before that, they were kind of running around doing the same thing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, similarity between, between all the people who live in that or are from that part of the world. And yeah, I think the, um, yeah, the idea—the idea that there's no difference between fiction and nonfiction. One of the you mentioned Borges, who's one of my all-time favorite writers. Oh, God, uh, amazing. So yeah, I mean, magical. Re- I mean, I think you allude to magical realism in your book, or at least you mention it. Maybe yeah. I'm making that up, but uh, maybe no, you're right. Did. But yeah, I th- you. yeah, I'm right. Okay. So like, I thought about like when I read uh, Garcia Marquez, right? It because it takes place in South America, a place that I'm only familiar with in passing. Yeah. The whole thing seems magical to me, right? Mm. But. Um, and and I do kind of lose the realism because I've just never lived the lives of any of the people that he describes. It, you know, obviously, Hundred Years of Solitude is a book everyone should read. You'll find something of yourself in every character. It's, right. You know, it's brilliant. Right. It's amazing. But um, the fact that your book takes place in Brooklyn, a place <laughs> I know intimately, right. where I lived for a long time, but is still in that tradition, gave me a new window into that style because it's like you know, nine things are familiar, and then one thing is magical, right. and that seems kind of plausible. Right, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. It it gave me a new window into that yeah. genre to see something in a world that was so familiar to me, but um, that is inhabited by a little bit of magic. I have to say, I talk about writing. I kind of learned. I learned some of that from really. I'm a huge Tolstoy fan, and I know it can be kind of I don't know, not so trendy right now because he's an old white guy, but just genius. Uh, and yeah. I learned that from Tolstoy is that. Not like you said, nine things in common and one. So if you <laughs> if you if you plant the nine things that people are familiar with and know, then uh, and they can relate to, and then you whatever else you put after that, no matter how crazy it is, people buy into it. You know. Yeah, the way the way you did that in Greenland is really is really fantastic, and that was I think one of the things that was sort of was harder for me to kind of get a bite into season of migrations of the north is that all of it was unfamiliar. And, and like, it was sort of the opposite where like there was the one thing that was familiar was like, 
oh yeah, seducing women in a big city. Well, this is. I was going to say, like, that was my first when I was reading it too. Like, I wasn't. I, I a friend gave me this book, and I and I, you know, I'm sold on it now. But at first, I was reading it, and I was like, ah, oh, this is all set in this old time, and I don't really, I'm not really like feeling it that much. But one thing I it was a really interesting. Like all of a sudden, he's like, he's in London, and he's like having S and M sex with all these. <laughs> <laughs> like these women, I'm like, okay, I, I could, I could go with this. Let's been there, done that. Yeah, like this, this is, this is not like in some village in cartoon, outside cartoons. But that's what's really cool about the book too, though. I think, right, that it, hmm. that it brings in how, like, well, for me, what's cool is that it, it's another main thing that makes it unique, and that it addresses colonialism and how it impacts us on the deepest level instinctual desires sexuality how it gets played out and how racism get played out of this level it's uh i think it's well there's also some pretty funky sex stuff going on in uh in the village too in his book yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there was a yeah there that's um a part of it i was very surprised by that there's just for the listener this is also a book you can read it's 100 pages or something it's you know it's a quick read yeah but you know, there's like all this sort of conventional narrative stuff. There's this like very out of left field story about this guy who's the main character, the subject seducing a bunch of women in London and ending up in jail. And then, you know, a couple things happen. And then all of a sudden he's in his grandfather's parlor talking to a woman who is like 70, yeah. who is just like, you know, has had 15 husbands. <laughs> and talking about who, like, who <laughs> fucked her the hardest. Yeah. Bad. yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. The book is banned in Sudan because of that. I mean, it's just recently not banned anymore. Wow. Yeah. That was, so that was a beautiful scene for me because I, I realized like, you know, when you think of like people in rural Arabic North Africa, you know, I, I just, I, I, maybe this is racism. Maybe this is just never having had these people's lives occur to me. Yeah. I just assume that they're, that they're different than I am. And like right. reading this, I'm like, oh, this is a conversation that like literally could happen anywhere in the world right. between any like middle-aged to old people. This would be the exact same conversation anywhere, you know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, it's like, it's funny because it seems like a silly realization to have. Like, obviously people are the same everywhere, you know, but, um, but it's one of the beauties and one of the, one of the beauties and one of the powers of literature, I think, is to make that something that should be explicit, explicit. And right you know, make the reader really feel it. So until that scene, the book felt like it took place in a fictional world to me. And then I was like, oh, right. This is just like the world I live in, just a different place than I'm used to. Yeah. It's funny, you know, right now, I mean, this is not anything to do with either my book or the book, but uh, right now, you know, there's Sudan is in terrible, horrible civil war going on right mm -hmm. now. It's really tragic, horrible situation there. And when uh, there's a first like, film in the Cannes Film Festival from Sudan right now. And the director was talking about feeling really conflicted about being on this glamorous stage while the country is in complete turmoil. But he said the beauty of it is that he hopes that it shows people from Sudan and a village in Sudan as the world can see that there were just people like everybody else. You know, it, mm. it, it humanizes. And just to your point, like you said, this could be anywhere. These people are, it's universal, uh, these issues, yeah. a lot of issues we have. So, well, one of the things, you know, from your work that I wanted to ask you about is that everybody has problems. <laughs> and I think I mentioned at the top that you were, that you're a practicing psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 
is there anything as a, as a, and honestly, a writer and a psychotherapist is probably the scariest person to talk to, Cause, um, <laughs> right? Cause like, not only are you noticing everything, but you're also kind of analyzing everything. And you know, I, I, yeah, I get two, two reactions that at a, if I get this information at a cocktail party, either someone wants to like, tell me all their problems and analyze everything or like, they're like, okay, bye. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Lovely weather we're having yeah, today, isn't it? <laughs> um, but what, uh, if anything, and maybe there's multiple answers to this, have you learned about people in general that helps inform your writing? Is there anything? Maybe it's a silly No, question, there but... is. There is. There, you know, it, it may sound kind of corny, really, but hmm. I learned that, you know, everyone, once you get, I think, and, and because I sort of think it's a privileged position, psychotherapy, because you sit with all kinds, I sit with all kinds of people of all different races and classes and ages even. And everyone is still has that five-year-old kid in them who is hmm. very much alive and either wanting attention or or needing attention or or being present somehow. And you know, we, you know, even when you see people who are extremely angry or hateful or, you know, unless they're psychopaths, you know, there's, there's a kid in there who's, there's a kid in everyone. And so hmm. in writing, I feel like, I don't know if I accomplished this and I hopefully I'll continue as I write to do it more so, but I think what people can relate to is when people have sort of these irrational, almost childish emotions that that don't seem adult and proper that we all put on these masks of like oh we're we know what we're doing like underneath we're like you know we're we're throwing tantrums and we're and we're scared and we're you know no matter who you are and we can laugh and be silly like kids too you know yeah i think that there's you know some of the stuff in greenland that stood out to me were the scenes where he's grappling with racism and whiteness and his own place in society kip is kip, yeah. and uh and muhammad does also um in a in in his own language the, the language that he has available at that time which is far less robust than the language we have available now but uh, i mean I'll, I'll just say this and try it out but like yeah. you, you you kind of sound crazy when you talk like that and it's because it's it's impossible today yeah to pinpoint specific racist things that happen really. I mean, there are, those things happen, but those, those are easy. Like, it's really easy to say like, oh, some guy came up to me and called me the N word. Like that's a clear cut oh, example well, of yeah, something racist. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't, that I don't think happens very often, but what happens way more often is like just these little subtle things. Yeah. And you write about this that like might not have been racism, but might've been racism right. or might not have been racism consciously on right. someone's part, but we're, and like, those are the things that, you know, I think about this, I'm, you know, I'm Puerto Rican and like, I, I sound crazy if I start to talk about like, well, I wonder if there are some opportunities I didn't get because someone saw me and they were like, oh, he's kind of, you know, maybe he's not as good as this other guy right. for some reason I can't quite yeah. put together. But like, as they say in the book, it's kind of like a mind fuck, right? Cause you never know. Yeah. Like, yeah, and you can never you can never know and you can never tell. And yeah, that was something that I that you just I thought you wrote beautifully that I'd never really been able to articulate that like it's hard because I'm, you know, I wear polo shirts, I look like I could be Italian or something. Yeah, yeah. I, like I feel like I I walk through the world as a white person, but I don't I'm not seen that way by everybody and I never know You're right. what yeah. the outcome is. And or who's seeing me however because it's never explicit. Right. You know? Yeah. 
and yeah, and like I, I could go down and I'm thinking about like in my own, you know, therapeutic journey, like, I don't know how I would even talk about this. Like, cause there's, there's really no, there, there's not really a language for it and there's not really a way to put a, to put a name to it. And I think that's what, that's what makes it so insidious. Yeah. I, thought, I thought you captured that pretty right. brilliantly. Yeah. I don't know. What do you mean? You crazy, you sound crazy uh, to whom, I guess. I don't know. I mean, maybe other well, people like, you know, when I, when I talked about it, you said you sort of related to it and probably other people like in our positions uh, mm -hmm. don't think it's crazy. So, yeah, I know I agree. Well, so crazy to me, what I meant by, by saying that you sound crazy is that there's no way to express it other than kind of raving. Oh, I see. Like you can talk about it, but there's no solution. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah I see. And so, so like, you you know, when you're discussing something with someone in a non-therapeutic context, you're like trying to discuss something. You're not just saying these things happen and there's nothing that can be done about right, them, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's what, that's what I meant. And, and, right. and like when Kip is talking to his husband, he like, there's no possible response. Right. Really. You know, and th that, that's what I mean that there's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and yeah, as, as a married person, sometimes you have those conversations and the point <laughs> is to let the other person talk. Right. right? right, right. And, and I saw, and maybe this is my own projecting, but I, I sort of saw Kip having these conversations with himself or with someone else and feeling himself like, like he was kind of raving and being like, okay, wait, am I being crazy or is this really happening? Yeah, yeah. And as a reader, there were some scenes where I was like, no, this is really happening. And some scenes where I was like, no, this guy's just trying to be nice to you. Right. Like yeah. on a very surface level. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, and, and it, it is difficult, uh, I guess, to parse those, to parse those interactions out. Well, I'm so know. glad to, to hear you uh, say that you got that because I mean, I was mm -hmm. going for that and I didn't even know if I really achieved that, but it sounds like that's what you got from it too. I'm so glad to hear that because it's, it is hard to, it's a hard thing to describe it to pinpoint because it's, you know, like you said, it's sort of insidious, but not necessarily blatant. Yeah. It's, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier with, um, you know, the white people of the 1960s who are progressive New York city psychologists being sort of post race, mm -hmm. right. Which is, which was a great step at that point, you know, um, but it is also, it's, it's also kind of, and, and I think I fell into that category until, cause that's how my parents are. Right. And my, yeah. my dad is white. My mom is Puerto Rican. And I think my dad doesn't see color. I think that's like how he perceives the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like in a, in, in a way that for him is positive and, and, and is certainly a big leap from the way his father was. That's true. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Um, <laughs> right. And, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what the solution is. I mean, there, there is like race, I think in general has to be acknowledged, but also like, yeah, I, I, I just think, how, how do I put it? I think enslaving people because of their race has just like, it's going to be like a thousand years before we figure it out. I agree. You know, I mean, like the, the, yeah. I mean, the Jews, it's been to what, 3000 years. Yeah. It still hasn't like that, that mark has still not completely been erased. Yeah. So anyway, it's the worst thing you can possibly do. I think as a human being is enslave another human being based on their race. Yeah. All right, this got really dark. Um, so, <laughs> well, 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 you know, even though like I tried with the book uh, to be entertaining uh, and light somewhat, it is a pretty dark mm -hmm. subject. We're dark subject we're talking about. It's a pretty heavy uh, mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, people who really suffer are being dehumanized, and it's it's the consequences are are really intense and 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 dark for relationships and then for one's sense of self. And yeah. 
And one of the things, one of the themes I, I also really resonated with in the Foster Muhammad narrative is that there's like, in their relationship, which is, I, I guess, probably illegal at that time. Yeah, it's illegal at that time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess it would be oh, yeah. gross indecency, what, what Alan Turing was uh, uh, convicted of. Um, but there's like, but because it's happening in uh, like outside of, you know, the Isle of Britain, um, there's basically no consequences for Foster if they get caught. Like embarrassment maybe but there's like for for muhammad it's probably a death sentence if they get caught oh yeah and there's just right. yeah that, yeah what a fucked up dynamic yeah isn't it yeah 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 at one point uh, you know ian foster says uh let's go meet at this cafe uh mm -hmm. not realizing that if muhammad were even to walk in that cafe he would probably you know end up in jail or beaten or you know and he does get beaten at some point uh Mm -hmm. novel. That, that happened in real life too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I have two last questions for you. One is just a psychiatrist question that I've always wondered the answer to, Diagnosing. which is that, yes. Can you please diagnose <laughs> me? No, I think I'm undiagnosable. Um, but, uh, do you find that, um, the more troubled patients are more interesting, like for you as, as the person sitting across the, wherever the sitting in the chair or whatever? That's a really interesting question. I'll, honestly, no. Hmm. I find the more troubled clients are, are maybe less interesting. Huh. Uh, because the more troubled you are, in, in terms of troubled meaning like severely mentally ill or, you know, deeply depressed or unfunctioning, not be able to function with anxiety, the objective is just to get to a functioning place hmm. and so that takes that that's that doesn't involve as much deep diving uh into the psyche as it does with someone who was like you know i always say like people sometimes come with me in crises and then like okay well the crisis is done i guess my therapy's done i was like well are you interested in anything else because often once the crisis is over that's when that's when real analysis really begins that's when you start to hmm. deep dive and i think we're all so interesting. I think everyone has got so much that's going on that's interesting and, and all these influences, defenses, and ways that we cope. And I, I just find people interesting, which is why I'm a writer and a psychotherapist. And so, you know, it's just more dramatic, the crazy stuff. Uh, I worked on a psych, a psych ward too, so it is dramatic. And it's kind of challenging to engage with that. But it's more interesting... Normal people are more interesting because there's more there's more deep dark stuff going on that, that meets the surface and it's and it's fun for people to discover what's there and to be with people when they discover themselves. Huh. Do you ever have a client or have you ever had a client where you just could not understand the way that they the way that their mind worked, where you, you just couldn't understand decisions that they made or like that their that their processes just worked very differently from yours? in a way that didn't make any sense to you? Or is everyone pretty much behave in predictable ways? I think there have been people who I've been uh, frustrated by because, you know, they continue, you know, they continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. They, they seem to have insight and then they, and then they, they're run up against uh, a block, but it's not necessarily uh, confusing to me often. I, I think not that I have all the answers. I'm not saying it's that, simple that I know, I know everything. So nothing, nothing confuses me, but 
I find usually if you dig deep enough, there's there's uh, a reason for things. Hmm. So, and I and unless someone leaves treatment early before we get there, I, I usually I find with the, we discover like what's why this defense is there, why this pattern is there. There have been people who I've find it challenging to get there, but not complete like, hmm, I don't know what this person's going on with that person. I don't know. That hasn't really happened. That hasn't happened yet. Well, there's definitely a whole other episode we could do about psychoanalysis and fiction <laughs> writing, and maybe we'll do that someday. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I loved your book. Um, I enjoyed so Seasons much. of Migration to the North. It's great talking to you. I have one final question that I ask every guest, which is to recommend two books to our audience. Oh my God. Just two? Okay. Yep. So well, you can do more if you want. I'll just do contemporary yeah. books then. Okay. I'll do one. Um, there's a book by uh, Damon Galgut, who is a South African writer. He he just won uh, last year. He won the Booker Prize for this book, uh, and I was a super huge fan of this book before it won the Booker Prize. Uh, it's called The Promise by Damon Galgut. Have you read it? Mm -hmm. I haven't. Oh man, this is and to me it's like a groundbreaking book in certain ways in that he does he achieves uh I think he, I think uh Edmund White uh, says it's like the most important book of the decade if not last two decades. Uh it, wow. formally and stylistically he does almost the impossible. He changes as a writer the writer would sort of get the trick of the difficulty of this. Changes perspective uh, from person to person, even within a paragraph, which is really hard <laughs> to pull off and be believable, but it allows for this polyphonic sort of uh, voices to come at you in an interesting way. And it tells sort of the history of South Africa through through the lens of this one particular dysfunctional white family who has uh, uh, Black people working for them who are important parts of the story. So The Promise, I highly recommend. And then... Uh, Everett Percival's The Trees. I really loved that. Hmm. Just read that. I don't know that one either. So, yeah. And that's a great satirical look at um, the reverberations of like the, the, the killing of Emmett Till mm -hmm. and the appearance of black zombies in the South. It's all, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's fun. Uh, it's fun and it's deep. That sounds like a Jordan Peele movie. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. yes, they can see, totally <laughs> see him doing that. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Thank you so much, David Santos Donaldson. So glad to have you. Please write another book and come back on the show. We'd love to have you again. The Book Society podcast is brought to you by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Chris Peters. We do new episodes on Fridays. We have a lot of episodes. You can listen to some back catalog. If you like the show, please give it a review. You can review it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Takes a few seconds. Helps out the show. Helps other people find it. And we really appreciate it. All right. See you next week. From the Caribbean islands, yeah, one yeah. of them starts with the. I'm, yeah. I'm from Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic or Cuba, whichever you know. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> no, yeah, uh, no, I you know. Got some I'm, big fights when people say that.